So, um, as a way of introduction, I need you to get this, that this, right here, that our God is unstoppable. He has an unstoppable mission, and His mission has an unstoppable church. And this is what we are seeing, this, this slow-moving locomotive really begin to take off into spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so today, man, I've got to cover a large chunk of scripture, so we're going to be flipping through chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We just simply don't have time today to read all of that. So, man, hold on. And uh, my goal today is to, to not go very long today, but what needs to be said, I think, is, is very, very important for us. And so, we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, there's only a few of them at this point, he says, here's the deal, the Holy Spirit, I'm sending him, it's not an it, it's a him, I am sending him to you, and he's going to empower you, and when he empowers you, the fruit of that baptism, the fruit of that empowerment is, is that you are going to be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the end, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and so the disciples wait for about 10 days having no idea how long they're going to wait and the bible says in acts chapter 2 that the, at a sound of a mighty rushing wind that the holy spirit came filled these men and women and immediately their response was to go and to proclaim the gospel of jesus christ now, over the last several weeks, we have seen several different things take place. There's been a little bit of persecution. There's been lots of preaching. God has been growing this congregation. It's believed in Jerusalem at this time that the church is now well over between 10 to 20,000 new baby Christians. Imagine having a new baby or two new babies, twins or triplets, or imagine 20,000 new babies in Jesus. And so we see, as we talked about last week, that we began to have a little bit of conflict. What's sin and Satan and death going to do is, is in most cases, is not going to cause the church to explode from outside, but he weaves his evil head into the church and then causes that church to implode. We saw that last week when there was great deception in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the people of God. They said they were bringing all of the offering, and lo and behold, they didn't bring all of it, and they kept a portion for it for themselves, and they immediately died. So how do we handle conflict within church? We're seeing all sorts of episodes take place. Now, one thing that is very clear that you need to understand is these aren't days. Again, each one of these chapters isn't a day. The book of Acts covers about 30 years. Um, by the time we got to last week's sermon, in chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5, it's believed that that's in 32 A.D. The day of Pentecost was 30 A.D. The um, Ananias and Sapphira story was believed to be around 32 A.D. So two years have passed in five chapters. By the time we get to where we're talking about today, 6 and 7, it's believed to be more around 35 A.D. So quite a bit of time has, has taken place in just the matter of a few chapters. And so um, up until this point, most of what is taking place is taking place inside of Jerusalem. Uh, most of the, the church only really exists probably at this time in Jerusalem. There may be a few outskirts of people that have already left Jerusalem, but for the most part, when the church was birthed, that's where people up to this point stayed. And so imagine Jerusalem. It's 
Roman ran, all right? So there's a lot of paganism inside the city. There is Judaism, all right? And now there is this new way, Christianity, this grassroots movement that is all taking place in this religious hub of the world known as Jerusalem. The followers of Jesus have been preaching throughout the city, um, but again, most of the time, these apostles, preachers, and teachers are spending their time preaching in Jerusalem, the most holies of cities, but where at in Jerusalem? In the temple and in the temple courts. Um, I always feel like this is really interesting because we've, we've heard this statement before, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that for up until five years now, uh, a majority of the preaching and teaching and eva- evangelism, the witnessing that is taking place, is taking place essentially in the church, in the religious people. The people who've got the Bible, who believe the Bible, who most of them have the Old Testament memorized, these Jewish people. They believe in God. They believe in Yahweh. And yet the disciples are proclaiming and preaching to these Jewish people now for up to five years. The Holy Spirit continues to pour out His power on them and the people are converting and the sick are being healed. The scripture tells us here in these passages that the Jewish leaders become very upset and in chapter 5 put them into prison. Now, what's interesting about this is as they're put into prison, in the middle of the night, chapter 5 tells us, that an angel shows up on the scene, undoes the the jail cell door, and this is what he says in 5.20. Go and stand in the temple... And speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple and at daybreak, at daybreak, and began to teach. So what happens? They've just been captured. They've already been captured a few chapters earlier and set free because they didn't know what to do, right? So these Jewish leaders, they capture them again. They put them in prison. And then all of a sudden an angel shows up, unlocks the door. And what did he tell them to do? Go right back to where you were and preach again. Guess what they did? The Bible tells us there, continuing on, That's what they did. They went and they preached the gospel. They went and proclaimed the gospel. They went and told about the life. And who is the life? Jesus is the life. So they're preaching, they're teaching, they're sharing the gospel. And all of a sudden, what happens? The Jewish leaders get upset again. Those same guys go and capture those apostles for what they're doing. The church continues to grow. There are more and more servants um, that, are, that are there serving in the church. Turn to chapter 5, verses 41 through 42. It says this. When they are in prison, and they're trying to figure out, the Jewish leaders are trying to figure out what to do with them, um, they end up letting them go, but not without beating them first and telling them not to do this anymore. All right? And then we get to verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Man, if you have your own Bible, that should be one that is unaligned in your scripture. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Lord. We begin to see a pattern here. They proclaim, oftentimes they pray, and then persecution takes place. They're beaten. They're put into prison. And then up until this point, they are now being released, and yet it doesn't stifle them. It, I, you know, if you send me to jail for something, I'm probably not going to do it again. It's like if, if uh, you know, Mr. Charlotte over here pulls you over, all right? As soon as we all see cops, what do we do? We slow down, all right? Even if you're not doing anything wrong. But, buddy, you get a ticket, and for a few days, you're paranoid. Oh, I don't want to get another ticket. I don't want to get another. But eventually that wanes off, right? Because, hey, I'm going right back to speeding, right? You get in trouble. It, it lasts. But, but these guys continue as soon as they release going back and preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's remarkable that nothing can stop these guys. Why? They've seen Jesus, They've been baptized by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. They have witnessed the resurrection. They are completely convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nothing can stop them. They are simply obeying what Jesus has said to do. And if that means they get beat, they get beat. If they get put in jail, they get put in jail. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6 here, it tells us that, again, the church continues to grow. It continues to grow. Well, just like if you've been a part of church for very long, we have a tendency to place all of the responsibilities on the pastor or pastors. And yet that's not what we see in Scripture. That even the pastors, we have specific roles. The elders have specific roles of things that we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be equipping the saints, preaching, teaching, proclaiming um, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those are our main responsibilities. But there are also other things that need to be done within the church. So we see through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that they are supposed to appoint deacons. In this case, I believe that they appoint about seven deacons. Don't get caught up in the word deacon. How many of you grew up in a real traditional Southern Baptist church? All right. If it's an old school church, Southern Baptist church, most deacons were just grumpy old dudes who really ran the church. All right? We don't see that in the scripture. The deacons don't really hold this governing power as much as they have a responsibility to serve the people. Even the apostles say, we can't stop preaching to wait tables. And that wasn't a mean term. It was simply there were things that didn't be handled, servant opportunities within the church that was taking the pastors away from being able to do what they are really called to do. And so we need to appoint some helpers. We need to get some servants. We need to get some deacons. And I, I would say deaconesses as well. I think we can see that in Scripture in several places. So we begin to see these overseers, these deacons, deaconesses, these servants that are serving in different responsibilities. And in that, we learn about this guy in, in 6.5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. All right? So one of these seven men, his name is Stephen. Is he a pastor? The scripture doesn't tell us that. Is he an apostle? The scripture doesn't tell us that. What it does say is he's, he's a deacon in the church. He's a servant in the church. All right? 
Now, it continues on there in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of these priests became obedient to the faith. So we're seeing an increase, multiplying is taking place. People are being saved. They're becoming members of these local bodies. They're investing time, talent, and treasure into the life of these believers. And then we see something really interesting that we've not seen take place. We learn more about Stephen, don't we? It says this in verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen as it is called, and to the, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and to those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly investigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up upon him, and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we, we, we learn about this guy named Stephen. He is a servant within the local body of the church. And yet... What do we find this member of the congregation doing? Preaching. What do we see this guy doing? He's, he's proclaiming. He's, he's not an apostle. He's not a celebrity preacher. He's, none of these, he's, just, he's one of the guys, he's one of the gals with, within that local body. Yes, he's been given a responsibility to serve in a specific way. I wish we had that way. It'd probably clarify some things for us as leaders. But, but in that, we, we don't really see, but we do see a fruit that is taking place inside of this guy, and it is the proclamation of the gospel. We've said, man, through the course of studying the book of Acts, that we're going to see God grow his church. And God is going to grow his church, not in ways that you and I want him to. Man, I, I wish that we could have just opened up our doors this morning, and a flood of people would have come here to hear the gospel. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we could just have the best music or the best preacher and people would just gather and, and truly be converted by that? Um, what if they would just show up like Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be very comfortable for us. And yet we're going to see, as we have been seeing, and you need to be reminded of today, that Jesus builds his church. And the way that he does that is through this proclamation, prayer, and persecution. Throughout Christian history, where those things have taken place, that is where the church booms. And where those things are not taking place, the church has a tendency to die, to fall away, to become weak in those areas. Now, 
when we see this today in seven, chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 50 or so. Um, this is the story of Stephen. As he stands trial, we got to peer in to see what's happening, right? These Jewish leaders are trying to bring charge of blasphemy. This was a big, big deal um, to the Jews. It's the same thing that Jesus was killed for supposedly doing. Because he declared that he was God. And Stephen is, is blaspheming against the, the Jews. Why? Because he is declaring that Jesus is God. They bring these witnesses up in front of Stephen who are saying, man, this guy's blaspheming. He's talking bad about the temple. He's, he's talking bad about our leaders. And Stephen gives the longest sermon that we have recorded in the book of Acts. In this section and in this section... This is where we see the man who is being um, prosecuted become the prosecuting attorney. Stephen knows the Scripture. And Stephen knows Jesus. And so in doing so, as he's being bombarded with these questions, we get this picture of Stephen standing up against this opposition. And what does he do? He preaches the Old Testament. He pretty much covers the entire thing. Talking about Abraham and talking about Moses and all of these different leaders and how that they were all pointing towards the person and work of Jesus. And even the temple, by the very end, as beautiful as it was, if it does not exalt the person and work of Jesus, then it has totally missed the point. At the very end of that sermon, this is what he says. Flip over with me to chapter 7, verse 51. Chapter 7, verse 51, says this. This is his conclusion, right? You English people, I think you're supposed to have a good introduction, body, strong conclusion, all right? Listen to what this brother says. How would y'all like to end this today with me doing this? No altar call, no everybody bow your head, close your eyes. That kind of, that's not what happens here, right? This is what he says. You stiff-necked people. You un uncircumcised in the heart and the ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. So he's looking at a bunch of church people, religious people. He calls them stiff necks and that they have persecuted the wrong people, that they have totally missed the point. They totally missed the point of all of the Old Testament. And what happens? Listen to this. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Isn't that an interesting, Luke just kind of throws, he's about the details, right? And you just get this picture of these dudes just, you know, gnarly like dogs, ravenous dogs, growling, and just so furious. I, I know none of you have ever had that kind of moment where you're that mad. But these guys are that mad. And what does Stephen do? Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Their response. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and and rushed together at him. They cast him from the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And what an image. What a picture. For the first five years of the church, there's, there's been little skirmishes and there's been some verbal um, persecution. But since Jesus has died on the cross now, five years earlier, this is the, the first scene that we see of someone physically giving their life for the person and work of Jesus. And throughout it all, and even while they are pelting him with stones or casting large boulders upon this man, as, as typically they would strip the person who's getting stoned and then beat them, the Bible tells us they were so angry that they stripped themselves and began to beat this man with these stones. These rocks. And as they are doing this, what is Stephen's response? Just like Jesus. Lord, forgive them of these sins. And it's hard enough to forgive somebody that pulls out in front of you. Right? If you're a college student, it's hard to go to whatever they call that business where you get your food now. They've changed it like 15 times since I went to college up at Western, so I don't even know what to call it. It used to be called Duck. Downing Student Center, is that what it is? What is it? Downing Student Union. You go there, you've been waiting all day to get in line, somebody busts out in front of you, you're like, mm, frickin' frickin' low down riffraff. I mean, you're, you're thinking all kinds of things about this, and this, this man is being beaten with stones. And all he can do is look to heaven and see the person and work of Jesus, and Jesus coming for him, and he says, forgive these brothers. Forgive them. Mission Church, God is going to grow His church through prayer, through proclamation, and persecution. Now, when I read these passages, I was thinking, I'm sure there's tons of sermons in these scriptures. By way of of application, two handles for you today, two major things that jumped out to me on these particular passages today. The first one is I'm going to give you a warning. And the second thing is I'm going to give you a way. As I was studying through these scriptures, praying through these scriptures, one of the first things that I began to to notice is a warning that, that was given to these people that I think also transcends into us. See, there's a major temptation in the American church 
to participate in weekly religious activities from gatherings for worship small groups to not cussing or drinking or listening to rap music and still miss Jesus. Again, where's the evangelism taking place? And the most religious people on the planet. And there is a, a temptation for us as Americans to be what is known as a cultural Christian or a nominal Christian. What's a nominal Christian? A nominal Christian is a person who believes and is and claims to be a Christian by name only, but does not practice it. Jesus says we are to be hearers and doers of the word. He even says it's not about your sacrifices, it's about your obedience now, these things don't save us, and that's where the religious Jews got this all mixed up, as they thought, man, if we do this stuff, then God will show us mercy. And yet the gospel declares he has done the work. Because he has done the work and has done the work inside of you, then there is fruit of that work. We have a responsibility for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus that we can't simply be Christians philosophically or mentally or, or ascend to a philosophical or intellectual belief system, but we must be radically saved by the person and work of Jesus. Man, please don't, don't stand before God one day and say, and if he was to say the question that I was raised to, to ask, uh, why should I let you into my heaven? He's from the South. Um, and you say, well, I went to mission church. You're going to be highly disappointed. I, I, I only listen to, to Christian radio or, or, or whatever these things may be. And I begin to, to wonder this question, what would one of the early apostles or early believers say to the American church? Bring it home. What would they say to Mission Church? If, if they were to step into your home, you know, because God's there too, right? He's not just... Hopefully he's not just in this building, because this is nothing like the temple, right? He's, he's in your home. He's in, he's in your car. He's when you're all by yourself. He's, he's resting. This is the scariest one. He's, he's resting in between the area between your two ears. What would, you, what would they say? You know, if we could, you know, hop in a DeLorean and bring one of them brothers back, here, all of a sudden, back to the future reference, y'all looked at me like, sorry, note to self, scratch that joke, all right? I mean, if we could bring one of those guys back, if we could bring Stephen back and transport him to this moment right here, and he could see, and he could listen, he could follow you along, I mean, if he could creep on you for a week, creep on our church for a week, and show up on Sunday, I'll sit down, y'all think I'm tough. Let the brother say, what would he say? What would he say? Would one of the early church fathers call us stiff-necked? You ever try to ride a horse that's stiff-necked? You're not going anywhere where you want to go. You're going to go where it wants to go. And he's saying, though we're pulling the reins, you're stiff-necked. I'm, I'm not going that route. 
right? It's like these parents who tie those leashes on their kids and walk around the mall. It's a monkey tail, right? That's strange. That's weird. If you do that, I'm sorry. You can send me a nasty email to justincrow13 at gmail.com. All right? But if you're a parent, got a leash on your kid, if that works for you. But you've seen those kids, right? They're going wherever they want, and the parent's trying to drag them all over the mall. And now we put these weird animals that you can ride through the mall. Anyway, sorry. That's weird. Um, if, if, would they say that we're stiff-necked? Would they speak against our materialism, our consumerism, our greed, and, and lack of sacrifice and obedience? Would they be blown away as they walk through Christian bookstores and facilities? Imagine trying to explain to Stephen Christian radio and Christian movies and television. Hold on, buddy, it gets good right here. Kirk Cameron's in it. I mean, imagine that, what that would be like. Now, when, when you show them the number of your Bibles, or you put out your phone or your iPad and you showed them apps with all of the Bibles, not that any of these things that I've mentioned are bad. I don't think it's bad to have Christian radio or to have Bibles in multiple translations or, or to have Christian entertainment even, for that matter. But when they were to see all of these things and see our lives with Stephen, with these early apostles, and even with Jesus, if he showed up on the scene and he saw all of those things, would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I have given you much and you used those blessings to bless the world. Or would he say something else? Would he respond like Stephen? You have all of this. Because you know what the issue with the, the Jews were? They thought they were something because of their legacy and because of that big building named the temple. We've got everything we need. Would Stephen show up like he did them and say, you've had all of this. You've got all of this. And yet you have missed the Messiah, Jesus. The second thing is away. Away. The first thing was a warning from this application. The second thing is away. Away. When one is truly engaged in God's mission, there is, is very little room for complaints about what you and I don't have. But rather a trust in, in faith in Him who does. It's really interesting for us to read stories about persecution. It's really interesting for us to read stories about martyrs. I don't know if you've paid much attention over the last several months, especially um, to the number of, of news stories that continue to come out, especially with the rise and threat of ISIS that is slaughtering hundreds of of Christians. I've done some stat work this week and I saw upwards to um, as much as 180 people a month. Um, I've seen numbers that say between eight and 9,000 a year, and I've seen the highest number being 100,000 a year of people who die as martyrs today. For the work of Jesus, for the proclamation 
of Jesus. See, we have a tendency to kind of segregate these things because we're not experiencing this yet in America. We have a tendency to go, well, man, that's, that's way over there. That's not happening here. And yet, since um, this time, since the birth of the church, I mean, it is believed that millions, millions of brothers and sisters in Christ have been beheaded and, and stoned and thrown to the lion's den, that they have been done, I mean, just horrendous things have been done throughout Christian history. Over and over and over again, brothers and sisters in Christ dying and now with modern technology, you can watch ISIS on a, what looks to be a beach or a desert with several brothers and sisters in Christ in orange jumpsuits. Guys, that's not made up. It's real. It happens. It is probably happening as we sit in a an air-conditioned room in America. Now, when I was talking to my buddy Mark Phillips, who we continue to build a partnership and a relationship with to try to reach out to the Songhai people, and I was talking to him, I was like, man, I'm preaching the, the martyrdom of Stephen this week. He said, well, man, let me, let me tell you how our nationals in Niger uh, responded when we were working through this story. He said, when we got to this story, he said that um, they spent an hour in prayer crying out to God for this. For persecution to increase in Niger. What? For persecution to increase. I mean, these are people that Mark tells me that after they baptize them, usually they do that in a river, right? So it's like going to the beach somewhere, a river somewhere where people are washing their clothes, feeding their animals, um, taking baths and you baptize them in front of a bunch of non-believers, probably most of them Muslim, and, and they tell them before they baptize, hey, you could lose your life over this decision you're going to make. And he says what's awesome and beautiful about it is, is after they bury them in Jesus and raise them in life, they tell them to go up there, and there's a natural crowd who have lost believers, who have just witnessed this baptism, and that new believer then preaches the gospel. To a bunch of Muslims. Man. It's tough. Let me share two quick stories with you. Alright? Anybody heard of John Dober and David Nitschman? By chance? These guys, um, now several hundred, a few years, hundred years ago, these two young Moravians um, heard of an island, the West Indies, and, um, the, that were, were there. Um, and at this island, there was an atheist British owner who owned 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this land. If he um, is shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he is never going to talk to any of us about God, I am through with all of this nonsense. 
So these guys were at this church, and they were in a similar setting to these, and this preacher was up here telling these people several hundred years ago about this land and this island that is completely overran by this atheist British slave owner. They're sitting next to their families, wives, kids. And these two men in that moment decide to partner up and and they tell their families, their wife and their children and their church family that they are going to and willing to sell themselves into slavery so that they can go to this island and preach the gospel. So that's what they set out to do. The story goes as they were docking a boat to leave their families, that their families are begging them not to go. To not to go and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these places because they, they wanted them. I get that. They, they longed for the people to stay with them. And as that distance is growing, the, the story tells us that one of them reaches out his hand and says, May the lamb that was slain receive the ward of his suffering. Now this is where this story takes an interesting twitch, uh, turn. As once they got there, they refused to let two white men become slaves. And so they were carpenters, and I think another one man worked on pottery, and they began to just simply work in and around these men and women. And they began to preach the gospel. They had planned on giving their entire lives to the sharing of the gospel to these, these men and women who were slaves and did not know Jesus. And this is where it twists again. Within 24 months, one of them became extremely ill and had to go back home. And the other one got moved to a different place and assignment. They saw little to zero conversions. However, because those two men stepped up with good intentions, gospel intentions, the Moravians continued to send missionaries to that island and in all accounts purposes, they, they ended up baptizing 13,000 people before any other missionary ever landed on that place. They were willing. They went. Things did not go as planned. And yet it opened a phenomenal door for the gospel. If you know anything about Jim Elliott, that's pretty much his story. I'm going to go preach the gospel to this group of people. He shows up. They kill him. And eventually his friends and family and other co-workers continue to go back to that very place and lead those same men who killed, speared this man and his, his friends and other colleagues and, and killed them. And yet, because that door was open, because they were willing to go, and because they sacrificed their lives for the greater gospel and for the proclamation of that gospel, the door was open and many people's lives were saved. Last week I just heard a story from Dr. Law. He is a, 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 an Indian. He's working and pastoring in India. And he tells a story about this pastor that he was training and, and teaching named Emmanuel. Emmanuel, his wife and two beautiful sons, 
Um, he boldly shares his faith in a, in a climate of radical Hinduism. Sometime after he had been there, a group of radicals, Hindus, kidnapped Emmanuel and his wife. And they took Emmanuel and these people and his wife, and I think they took them out to the woods. And they began to beat them severely. And then eventually they, they, they took Emmanuel and they tied Emmanuel to a tree. And they told Emmanuel that if, if you don't denounce Jesus, then we're going to physically and sexually abuse your wife repeatedly in front of you. And him and his wife continued to preach and to proclaim. They would not renounce. Someone walking by or something happened to witness this, called some people, and some people came and rescued them. And Emmanuel and his wife continued to preach the gospel in that same city, walking shoulder to shoulder with the very men who had abused them and physically and sexually abused his wife. And they continued to walk by them. Whenever they walked by them, they would say, man, may God bless you. Eventually, some of those men who had done all of this abuse came to Emmanuel and his wife, and they said, you know, why, after everything that we did to you, why, whenever we see you, you say to us, may God bless you. And this is what Emmanuel and his wife does. Why don't you come to our house? What? You can't go to my house? Why don't you come to our house? And the men came. And now those men who once were the abusers are now followers of Jesus. And I believe they serve in the same church as Emmanuel and his wife. Now I don't know about you, whenever I hear these stories I get just rocked a little bit, and I can even get like, oh my gosh, how does this happen? I can even become like, I, I live in America. Let's, let's just be really honest, we, we have no connection to those stories. They're interesting to hear. They're true stories. They're they're interesting to read about. But for us as Americans, we, we don't, we have no connection to that. Because it's not our lives. Yet. Yet. And so when I, when I think about these things, and I, I read about Stephen, I think, man, this is a horrific story. When I read about those two guys, and, and I read about Emmanuel, and I, I read about guys like John Bunyan and, and Jim Elliott and, and, and tons of these other believers that we have a history of them giving their lives. And I, I am intrigued by those things. I've always been intrigued by people giving their lives for the cause of Christ. And yet, man, just being really honest, it's kind of like seeing violence in a movie anymore. 
I'm numb to it. Because this, this really isn't my life. And as I begin to think about this and in closing for today is this. I think the question for us as Americans is not an issue of whether or not we would die for Jesus. Because I honestly believe that those of us, I, I truly believe, 100% believe, that those of us who have truly been saved by Jesus, if, if militants were to come in here, put the gun to our head and say, denounce Jesus or die, I, I honestly believe that everyone who is truly saved would do that. I think most of us in this room, if we were to ask that question, you say, yep, yeah, and I, I would die for Jesus. I think there's a bigger, deeper question than for us as Americans because we are yet to experience physical persecution from the outside coming in to the threat of taking your lives here in America. And I believe that this is the question. It's not whether or not I would die for Jesus. I think it's more of a question of how we will live for Jesus. How will we live. Stephen died for Jesus. You know why? Because he lived for Jesus. Stephen experienced this persecution and the outside was trying to, to crush them. Why? Because he was so caught up in the person and work of Jesus. He lived for Jesus. It was on his lips. It was in his mind. It was both in his private time and his public time. He was consumed with the person and work of Jesus. These apostles, these disciples, these men, these women, they were completely consumed in living a life daily for the person and the glory of God. And so when it came to dying, it was a no-brainer. We've seen Jesus. He's the suffering Messiah. And so it becomes, as, as, as Paul says, what? To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. What do you gain? Well, the reward of heaven, the reward of being with God for eternally. But you've got to get the first part. There is the living part. Not just the agreeing part. But man, my life is all about the person and work of Jesus. Jesus. And so Mission Church, how, how are we living? How are we faithfully living as a church, as an individual, as a people group, as proclaimers of the gospel? That we're taking every opportunity that we have, that, that God places, and that we are seeking opportunities to proclaim the person and work of Jesus. Because man, when we've seen Jesus... We can't help but live in this way. Lastly, and most importantly, is man, where do we find Jesus in this story? Where do we find Jesus? While all this is going on, we can see from what Stephen is saying that he's right there. 
that He's right there. That all of His focus, all of His attention is on Jesus. Why? Because Stephen proclaims that Jesus is there. Who does Stephen see? He sees Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, no matter where you are today, no matter what battles you're going through, whether it's living for Him, whether it's, you know, as the Flanders this week, you go out on a date and it turns up into a gospel opportunity, whether you're in ice, uh, you know, being held down and in ropes by a radical group that is here to annihilate believers, whether it's at a, a loss of a person in your life, whether it's through illness growing inside of the bodies within believers that are in this room, whether it's your marriage is on the rocks or your children are acting chaotic, Jesus is there. He's there. May you be encouraged and reminded that yes, there are some warnings, but that there is a, there is a way, and that way is a way to live in and through and for Jesus. But there is also the reminder and the encouragement that no matter what the issue is, if you're a follower of Jesus, He is there. Simply look to Him. If you would, pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You, God, for this opportunity, Lord, to worship You again.